you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1044, Matthew chapter 16. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to the beginning of chapter 16 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, the signs of the times, Matthew chapter 16. And we'll begin reading in verse number one. And this is what the word of God says. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times." An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are crucial to our safety, for they warn us of impending danger. They are crucial to our health, for they alert us when there's something going wrong with our bodies. They are crucial to our driving, for they help us safely navigate the highway. What are they? Signs. And as we come to Matthew chapter 16, we come to a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day concerning signs. And we see in this account the importance that signs of the times played in the earthly ministry of Jesus and the importance that the signs of the times play in our lives today. For instance, how many of you have had conversations in recent weeks and months about the signs of the times? Chapter 16 in the Gospel of Matthew is the centerpiece of this Gospel. It's the centerpiece of Matthew's account of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter is the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching and of his disciples' growth in spiritual understanding. The events recorded in Matthew 16 form a dramatic turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. For the first time in this chapter, Jesus mentions the church. In this chapter, Jesus speaks openly about his death and crucifixion on the cross. In this chapter, Jesus gives his most famous instruction on what it means to be one of his disciples. And in this chapter, Peter makes the single most important confession of faith in Jesus Christ when he declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is here that Matthew shows us how everything, especially the increasing opposition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is leading Jesus to the cross. And he begins this crucial, important chapter with a discussion about the signs of the times. And so I want you to notice, first of all, in verse number one, <clears throat> the demand for a sign. Matthew says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you'll recall from last week, at the end of Matthew chapter 15 and verse 39, uh, Matthew says that Jesus and his disciples left and went to the region of Magadan. And here at the beginning of chapter 16, Matthew says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him when he reached that region. Now, right here at the outset of this chapter, we see something very surprising. We see in an unusual combination of forces. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together. And what is remarkable about these two groups coming together is that they were opposing religious parties who disagreed about, on about every single subject you could think of except for their disdain toward Jesus. The Pharisees, whose very name means separated, were the fundamentalists of their day. They set themselves apart by their strict observance of the law of God and of the tradition of the elders, often elevating those traditions above God's very word. The Pharisees were consumed with their own self-righteousness. And their religious practices had deteriorated into a form of legalism and hypocrisy, thinking that they were more acceptable to God based upon their outward appearance and obedience. And although the Pharisees' zeal for the law drew them into legalism and a misguided fascination with the minutia, which Jesus would continually condemn, the Pharisees did believe in the right things. They believed in the Old Testament. They believed in miracles. They believed in the coming of the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection, and they believed in final judgment. They just didn't believe Jesus. And while the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the day, the Sadducees were the liberals and the skeptics of the day. They accepted the written law of Moses, but they rejected 
just about everything else. The Sadducees were so sad, you see, because they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the supernatural. And although they looked for the Messiah, they were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for a leader who would establish the right political rule and reign on earth. And their policy was to line up with whatever political group met their needs. They were consumed in self-indulgence. And there's no greater example of their self-indulgent beliefs than the fact that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought that earthly life was all that there was, and then it ended. And so here, in spite of the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't agree on much, and they were often at odds with one another, Matthew says in verse number one that this unholy alliance of the self-righteous and the self-indulgent come together to oppose Jesus. Now the flow of the narrative here at the beginning of chapter 16 leads us to believe that they were already in that region waiting for Jesus to get out of the boat. And Matthew says in verse number one that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to Jesus, look carefully, to test him. Mark in his gospel account, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 11, says that the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus. And so this was a heated conversation. It was an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they had come to test Jesus. The word test here in verse number one is the same word that is used in Matthew chapter four and verse number one when Matthew describes Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And it can also mean to tempt. And this is exactly what is happening here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to test Jesus. And they've come to test Jesus by tempting him to perform a sign from heaven. You see, the word sign, it means much more than simply a miracle or a demonstration of power. It means a wonder by which you can recognize who a person is. And so they've come to Jesus to test him, to trap him, to tempt him, to perform some outrageous sign to prove who he really is. And you'll notice they describe the type of sign that they're looking for. They want a sign from heaven. They want something miraculous to happen in the skies. And this really wasn't a question that they were asking of Jesus. The language of the text really lends itself to the fact that they were demanding for Jesus to perform this outrageous miracle or sign in the sky. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew, does that not surprise you? What have we seen for chapter after chapter after chapter? Miracles, signs, and wonders. Jesus has healed the sick. He's cast out the demons. He's calmed the storms. He's fed the multitudes. He, he has even raised some from the dead. 
And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been aware of most, if not all, of these miracles. But they rejected every single one of them. In fact, the Pharisees said, Jesus did all of these things through the power of Satan. He was an agent of the devil. And so now they come to Jesus demanding a personal sign from him that only God could perform so that they would believe in him. Do you know what they had in mind? It was in the skies. Jesus caused a star to fall down from the heavens. Jesus turned the moon to red. Jesus, do something outrageous beyond belief in the sky. This was not a sincere request on the part of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was a ploy to discredit Jesus by proving that he didn't have power. And because he didn't have power, he couldn't be the Messiah. And because he couldn't be the Messiah, you had to ignore his message. But in their spiritual blindness, listen carefully, friends. The Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't see that Jesus himself was the sign that they were looking for. They couldn't see that they were actually a fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember it, don't you? In Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph <clears throat> took the infant Jesus to the temple to present him, that the prophet Simeon greeted them, and that Simeon took the infant Jesus into his arms, and he spoke of a prophecy about Jesus. And this is what Luke records that Simeon did in Luke chapter 2 and verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Listen carefully. And for a sign that is opposed. Jesus was the sign from Almighty God from heaven, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the opposition to God's sign of His Son. And they were fulfilling Simeon's prophecy. And because these unbelieving religious leaders refused to accept God's supreme sign, His only Son, they would never accept the lesser signs of his miracles. And like Pharaoh in the Old Testament in Egypt before Moses, the more the Pharisees, the more the Sadducees saw the power and the message of Jesus, the more hardened their hearts became. We not only see the demand for a sign, we also see the discernment regarding a sign in verses 2 and 3. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus responds to the demand of the Pharisees and the Sadducees by giving them a proverb. And by making a declaration. You'll see there in verse number 2. In the first part of verse 3. Jesus gives the, prophecy, the proverb. When it is evening you say it will be fair weather. For the sky is red. 
And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. We use this same proverb today. See if you recognize it. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors take delight. And so Jesus gives them this proverb. And then at the end of verse 3, Jesus makes a declaration. Look what he says boldly to them. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I want you to see an interesting wordplay that is taking place here between verse 1 and verses 2 and 3. And what, do they, what do they come to Jesus for in verse number 1? A sign from heaven, a sign from the skies. And how does Jesus answer them? What kind of vocabulary does he use in verses 2 and 3? Do you see it? The word sky repeated three times. And Jesus is pointing them back to their request with the use of his language. And he's saying, you can look up into the heavens and you can interpret all that is happening in the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And the times in which Jesus lived were alive with signs. Day after day, week after week, month after month. Jesus performed signs and wonders and miracles without number. And we saw last week that Jesus does all things well and that there's nothing that is too difficult for him. These days were full of signs from Jesus. And Jesus himself was the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the sign above all signs right before them. But they could not see it. Oh, they could interpret the weather. They even had the Weather Channel app on their phone. They were locked in. They could interpret everything that was happening in the sky. But they couldn't interpret the signs that were right in front of them. They were blind to the present reality standing before them. And do you know what Jesus was saying to them and Jesus is saying to you and me this morning through his declaration? You have no idea what God is doing in the world. You're oblivious to the times in which you're privileged to live. You know how to forecast the weather, but you cannot interpret the times. My life and my ministry, they mean nothing to you. You worry about the weather and whether it's going to rain tomorrow, but you don't give a single serious thought about where you'll spend eternity. That's what he was saying to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. And that's what he's saying to you and me this morning, friends, because our world is filled with people just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People who have incredible knowledge. People who have great insight. People who have unbelievable discernment concerning worldly matters and worldly events. But when it comes to the events and the signs and the things of God, they are absolutely clueless. No ability to discern the signs. No ability to discern the times. No ability to understand the things that are happening around us this very moment. And like the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it is not because of a lack of evidence. It is because of pride and a lack of honesty and a lack of humility. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees were spiritually blind and they did not understand because they would not understand. And because they would not understand, they could not understand. And what was true for them is true in our day this morning. It's not that we lack evidence. It's not that we don't understand. It's that we refuse to understand. We refuse to humble ourselves before the God of the universe, our creator and ruler and sustainer. We will not interpret. We will not believe. And because we will not, we cannot. Unless you think I'm making these statements up, John, in his gospel concerning the unbelief of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, he quoted the prophet Isaiah and what Isaiah had to say about these religious leaders and those in our day who are just like them 700 years before Christ ever came to earth. And this is what John writes in John chapter 12, verses 37 to 40. And though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, listen, this is Isaiah. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Do you know what Isaiah is prophesying? Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what Matthew is teaching us through the words of Jesus to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees? The more you reject Jesus, the more you deny Jesus, the more spiritually blind and the more hard-hearted you become. So that... Your would not believe turns into a cannot believe. You're hardened, separated in your unbelief. Well, we not only see the demand for a sign and the discernment regarding a sign, we see in verse number four the denial of a sign. Jesus isn't finished with them. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 12, Mark records that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit when he spoke these words to the religious leaders. Heartbroken, frustrated, over their lack of belief. The Pharisees and Sadducees' demand for a sign revealed the true condition of their hearts. Jesus described it. Did you see it in verse 4? He said that they were an evil and adulterous generation. These religious leaders were worshiping a false god of their own making, and this amounted to nothing more in Jesus' eyes than spiritual adultery. And instead of being content with the signs that God had already given them, they wanted more, and they wanted more, and they wanted more. And I can assure you this morning, based on God's word and everything we've seen leading up to this passage, if Jesus would have given them a sign here, it would not have satisfied them. They would have wanted more. But Jesus tells them, 
No sign will be given to this generation except for one, the sign of Jonah. You see, Jesus has already had this conversation with the Pharisees. Back in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 38 to 41, they came to him and asked for a sign there. And Jesus explained to them in those verses that just as Noah was in the belly of the whale or the fish or whatever you want to describe it, and was released by God, so the Son of Man would be put in a tomb, and three days later he would rise from the grave. And then at the end of that encounter, Jesus said, and I tell you, someone greater than Jonah is before you. And so the only sign that a spiritually adulterous world will ever see is the sign of Jonah. And so you ask, well, what is the sign of Jonah? Simple. Jesus' words are simple. And other places in Scripture corroborate his definition of the sign of Jonah. Do you know what it is? It's his death, it's his burial, and his resurrection. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit poured out on the church and the church was birthed, Peter preached his first sermon and at the end of his first sermon, he was continually pointing the people back to the resurrection of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that because God raised him from the dead, he has made him both Lord and Christ. What's the sign? Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He was put in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And this is the certainty that God has made his son both Lord and Christ. You want a sign? This is it. He rose from the grave. Not convinced? Paul, in his conversation with the Athenians, he pointed them to the resurrection of Christ. And he pointed them to the resurrection of Christ as the basis of the assurance of their salvation and as a promise of judgment that would come. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's the certainty of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that Christ's resurrection is the assurance of our faith. And Christ's resurrection is the promise that this world is not all that there is. That there is coming a day of final judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ will judge all the nations of the world and all the peoples of the world. And every single person in heaven, on earth, and in hell will bow down before Christ and declare Him as Lord. And his resurrection is the sign that proves all of this. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to trap him instead of turn to him and believe in him. And Jesus knew that no other sign would convince them. The sign of Jonah was the final sign. It's the final sign that Jesus gave 
to the world so that the world would believe. Jesus has proven who he is. Jesus has proven what he has done. It's the final sign. There will not be another. And to prove Jesus' point here, Matthew chapter 28 tells us that when they found out that the tomb was empty, the Pharisees bribed people to say that the disciples had stolen his body. Look carefully what happens at the end of verse 4. It's, it's so insignificant in the text that you'll miss it. Matthew says he left them and departed. There's only one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Pharisees, Sadducees, if you don't believe it, you're not going to believe anything. And he got in a boat and he left. And the word left literally carries the idea of forsaking and abandoning. He's done. He's done with the religious leaders. This is a turning point in his life and in his ministry. And what you will see in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is an increasing hatred to Jesus Christ from the religious leaders and those who opposed him. And it will culminate in his crucifixion on the cross. You may find yourself here this morning in the same position as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, demanding more proof from God. But like the Pharisees and the Sadducees found out, you're not going to get it. He's already given you all the proof that you need. The Bible says, friend, in Romans chapter 1, that there is enough evidence for you to believe that a creator exists by leaving this room, looking outside in the sky, and seeing creation. That all of creation is testifying to you this morning of the creator and of the glory of God. And if that were not enough to convince you, he showed you who he is and what he can do in your life by giving his son for you. And if that won't convince you, if that won't satisfy you, I'd submit to you this morning that nothing will. God has given you the best. He's given you His Son. He's given you Himself. And if you don't believe that evidence, what makes you think this morning that you'll believe anything else? No, you don't need more evidence. You need to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to turn from your sin and your shame and your guilt and all that is keeping you from a relationship with the God who created you. And you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You don't need more evidence. The evidence is in front of you. You just need to believe it and receive it. Well... We not only see the demand for a sign and the discernment regarding a sign and the denial of a sign. Finally, we see the discussion surrounding the request for a sign in verses 5 through 12. Matthew says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Mark tells us that after Jesus left the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he got into a boat and he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us here in verse number 5, when they got to the other side, the disciples realized they had forgotten to bring any bread. And so in verse 6, after hearing the disciples' conversation in verse 5, and after his encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus decided to take the opportunity to teach the disciples a lesson. It was a lesson regarding leaven and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here we see the disciples again, don't we? How many miracles have they seen? How many thousands of people have they seen Jesus feed? And all they're concerned about is their lack of bread. When you read that, don't you just shake your head and say, are they ever going to learn? And then don't you think about yourself and shake your head and say, am I ever going to learn? Because we're just like them. So in verse 6, Jesus responds to their unbelief. And he says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, Jesus described their religion as leaven. And I don't know how much you know about, a le about leaven. I don't know that much about leaven, so I'm going to keep my comments brief so I don't uh, say the wrong things about it. I know that it only takes a little bit of it to go a long ways. And I know that from my early days of marriage when my wife got into a group of people who were baking Amish friendship bread. Ah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The freezer was full. The countertops were full. Bread everywhere because a little bit of leaven goes a long way. It has an influence on the bread. And that's Jesus' point, friends. The evil influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You recall when Jesus, or when God led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, what did he tell them? Take bread with no leaven in it. Because the leaven was a sign and a symbol of the evil influences of Egypt. And God wanted his people to have a fresh start from those evil influences. And Jesus is giving imperatives here in verse 6. Do you see it? Watch and beware of the evil influences of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The word watch means to see things clearly, to take notice. The word beware means to guard against, to stay alert. And Jesus was saying, open your eyes, pay careful, close attention to the leaven, to the evil influences of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, look at the text in verse number 7. After Jesus gives these warnings, the disciples hear Jesus mention leaven and they think he's still talking about bread. There they go again. And so they discuss among themselves the fact that they have no bread. And can you just picture Jesus in that moment shaking his head? 
shaking his head. Look at the mountain over there. I fed 25,000 people. And so, in verse 8, Jesus responds boldly to the disciples, and he says to them, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then notice what happens in the text. In verse 8 through verse 11, Jesus asks his disciples five questions, and he uses key words that are very similar. Do you see them? Do you not perceive do you not remember? Do you not understand? Jesus was asking his disciples this. Are you just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Are you unable to perceive and understand who I am? Do you not remember feeding the 5,000? Do you not remember feeding the 4,000? Do you not remember how much food was left over? Do you really not understand who I am? Do you really not perceive? Are your hearts that hard that you won't believe? Are your ears that cut off that you can't hear? Are your eyes so blind that you cannot see? And then notice verse 12. At the end of all of these questions, Matthew says that the disciples understood that Jesus was not talking about bread, but about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was the contaminating influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus was describing as leaven. It was that contaminating evil influence that Jesus was warning his disciples about. He was saying to them, beware of their influence. Beware of their thinking. Beware of their living. Do not let those things influence your life or your belief. You see, the leaven of the Pharisees was characterized by unbelief. It was characterized by a rejection of God's grace. They were resting in their outward performance. They centered their lives on the law and on things that they added to the law instead of grace. They took their relationship with God seriously, but they failed to understand the depths of their own sin. The Pharisees truly believed in their hearts that they could add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by adding to his work, they would be more acceptable to God. But in the end, their leaven, their belief, it hardened them to the point that they hated Jesus. The leaven of the Sadducees, it was characterized by unbelief too. But it was a liberal unbelief. It was a total rejection of the truth. For them, the pursuit of God was a means to gain temporary influence in the world. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead, and so all they had to live for was this earthly life. And so their philosophy was eat, 
drink, be merry, gain power, because you're just going to die in the end, and that's it. And they were full of unbelief. They were living for the wrong world. And in the end, their leaven, it hardened them towards Jesus, just like the Pharisees. And they hated him as much as the Pharisees hated them. Their religion was enemies of the gospel. It was enemies of the grace of God displayed through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected the truth. They corrupted the truth. They corrupted God's gospel and God's people. And Jesus was saying, don't let legalism influence you. Don't let liberalism influence you. Don't let the legalism of the Pharisees lead you to believe that Jesus is not enough, that you need more. And don't let the liberalism of the Sadducees deceive you and make you think that there's nothing to believe in. You've been given a sign. I am that sign. And just like Jonah was in the fish, was thrown out, I was in the tomb, and I walked out. No other sign will be given to you. Don't let their unbelief take away your hope. Don't let their unbelief take away your forgiveness. Don't let their unbelief take away your peace. Don't let their unbelief harden your heart and deceive you and take your life over like leaven. Don't become consumed with self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Be consumed with grace found in Christ. The signs of the times were all around them. And they refused. And just like their day, the signs of the times, friends, are all around us. We are surrounded by signs and evidences that Christ not only entered humanity, but that He lived, that He died, that He rose again, that He ascended to heaven, and that one day He is coming back to rule and reign. And if you don't believe me, just look around this room this morning. This room is full of testimonies of the signs of the grace of God. This world is full of signs. Can't you see them? Don't you believe them? Or are you blinded to the truth? Are you blinded by your pride and your unwillingness to believe? We're not just surrounded by signs that proves that what Jesus did was real. Friends, we're surrounded by signs that prove that Jesus is coming back. You say, how can you say that? Well, I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said about it. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, his disciples came to him and said, Lord, how are we going to know when you're going to come back? What will be the signs of your coming? And as I read these verses, I want you to just think about what you've been hearing on the news, what you've been reading on your posts and the things that you do in social media. And I want you to see if there is any relationship between what Jesus said 
in what you're seeing around you. Listen to his words. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Did you hear that? The beginning. It's not yet. It's a preview of what's coming. And is there anything in the list that I just read to you that you've not seen take place? No. It's all taken place. Listen. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. If I just stopped right there with that last verse, would that not be enough to convince you that lawlessness will reign and the love that people will have for one another will die? It will grow cold. People will hate each other. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Signs. Signs. All around you. Why aren't you convinced? Why do you think you got it all figured out? Why do you think this morning that there's a different plan for you than the rest of the world? Really? You're that special? That you've got your own deal with God? You've got all that worked out? Oh, friends, if you're not believing and resting in Christ for eternity... Whatever you're believing in, whatever you're resting in, whatever you're trusting in, listen, it'll fail you in the end. You will come up empty. Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. And Jesus Christ is the life. And there's no one, there is no one who comes to God except through him. Jesus is your sign. Would you turn from your sin and come to Christ today? Let's pray.